we said it on the previous podcast, but the signs are all there, Amit, and there might be too many signs. Do we need to get off the Argentina train? When when FIFA comes in, they run their simulation. They've been right, 2010, 2014, 2018. They're telling us Argentina's going to win. The, the stars are all pointing one way, and it's it's not good for us, Austin, because too many people are on the Argentina bandwagon. I thought it's we were going to be like – like, kind of like, ah, cool, we're picking Argentina. Nobody else is going to pick Argentina. And then we put Henry Bushnell on the show, and he's like, oh, you got to pick Argentina. EA Sports runs the FIFA 23. Ah, oh, we picked Argentina. There's too many signs. We need something, like, bad but not that bad to happen. Can we, like, get this Giovanni Lo Celso news out there? Like, everybody off the Argentina train. Everybody off the Argentina train. It, it might have been trouble when we, we thought we were getting cute picking a team with, with Messi. Really, sure. really <laughs> dark horse stuff by us. Uh, this is World Cup After Dark. I'm Austin Miller. He's Amit Malik. And for the second consecutive show, we have a very special invited guest. It is John Arnold of Getting CONCACAF and a bunch of other different places. John, are you picking Argentina to win the World Cup? Almost. I'm picking Brazil, but Argentina. Yeah, same thing. They're the same thing. I did. I did. A, I did. I, I'm, I'm working with Covers, which is a Canadian company. Hopefully people can check out and enjoy the content. And it, it's it's making some picks, helping betters uh, be smarter and, and make better bets. If that's what listening to me does. Uh, jury will be back in after the World Cup. But uh, I, there's a plus 220 South America or Conmobile team to win the World mm. Cup. And I said, I love that because yeah, I'm Brazil first, Argentina second. So uh, I, I'm, I'm there on the record. Give me Messi or Neymar. One of them will probably win this tournament. John, I, I'm thoroughly impressed that you got a plug into the podcast within the first 30 seconds. <laughs> that is a well-practiced man. You know what you're doing. ABP, always be plugging. You know, if I, if I don't get clicks on the things, then people don't give me money to do the more things. And then I have to get a real job instead of bumming around after dark with you guys. Uh, just if I can ruin the illusion for the, the listeners, it's still light outside where all three of us are. <laughs> daylight savings <laughs> it time. It's daylight savings time. Uh, something yeah. like that. Perfect, uh, on today's perfect, show, yeah. we've got the expertise of John Arnold. So we, we're going to break down the CONCACAF teams at the World Cup. Um, I don't like to, to toot my own horn like this, Amit, but we've got my expertise. We're going to break down the Conmobile teams. Uh, if you're looking for, for Europe, for Asia, for Africa, we'll have those on a different show next week. So a good preview show going on. And I think, Amit, for me, these are the teams that are near and dear to my heart. Obviously, the Conmobile teams, the CONCACAF teams, hopefully can, can bring a little, a little fun this World Cup. These are the teams that I really want to see do well. In a previous iteration of me, would have just picked them all to go to the semifinals and be like, ah, it'll all work out. That's not me this time, but it kind of is because I'm picking Argentina. I mean, we talked, you know, John gave the odds to the best teams in the field, plus a few other solid teams. You know, we'll talk about Uruguay, you know, they've got the talent too. It's a good, it's a good year for a uh, Conor teams and uh, they're due. Heaven wants 2002. So, I like it. Uh, I, you know, it's a good time for them. They're not on European soil for whatever that, matters if it does or doesn't why not this year i i want to actually i i don't know if this is unprecedented if the guest is is able to just jump in but like john this is literally the lowest level podcast you've probably ever been a guest on there are no rules you are the most famous person that has ever touched this show so it's all you man <laughs> I, I mean it says it's a good year for common Bowl. okay is it like on the one hand we're, we're all picking argentina or brazil but on the other i feel like 
you know, we don't have an, an extra team with the playoff. And to me, that actually sort of determines, at least from a CONCACAF perspective, that absolutely determines like how successful is the tournament. Because if all the teams crash out of the group stage, but you got four in there, well, at least we had four teams. I mean, I know the Commonwealth standards are a bit higher in that respect. And obviously, teams have won the World Cup from that region. Do you think, Austin, this is a good crop of South American teams? This is the best iteration we've had in recent memory? Or could there be better things have there been was 2018 stronger was 2014 stronger and those teams just didn't achieve right so i think what you have and i think we really saw this play out in the conval world cup qualifiers you have a very top heavy set of conval teams i think argentina and brazil are as good or better than they have been at any point in recent memory and i also think it is fair to say it is probably correct to say Everybody else in the Confederation, maybe bar Uruguay, who kind of feels like they've kept their level more or less, particularly after the the signing of Diego, Diego Alonso as manager, I think is at a lower level than you have seen anybody else. And I think that that's borne out by the fact that Peru were knocked out in the playoff by a pretty limited Australia side. You know, Australia are going to the World Cup and they're going to be one of the worst teams at the World Cup. And they took Peru out. I think Ecuador were deserving of making the World Cup, and and we'll get into them more specifically here in a minute. But outside of that, you know, Chile was as bad as they have been. Colombia was as bad as they have been. And those are two nations that in the past few World Cups have really kind of helped raise the profile of Conmebol outside of Argentina and Brazil. So the short answer to your question is I think the teams at the top are as good or better than they have been, and the teams below them are probably significantly worse than they have. Yeah, I can't wait for that uh, World Cup qualifier between uh, Brazil and Argentina. That's still going to happen. <laughs> it's happening. It's coming. It's coming. <laughs> we got to make it up. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about Brazil. Um, they are the the team that is most associated with South America. They are the team from South America that have won the most World Cups. They are the team that has been most successful from this confederation recently. They were the best South American team in Russia. They were one of the two South American teams that lifted the Copa America in between these two World Cups. Amit, from an outsider perspective, what do you make of this Brazil team? Well, I think the the attacking talent is just jumps off the charts at you. You know, if you're a follower of European football or you're just like a casual soccer fan, you know a lot of these guys. Everyone knows Neymar. He's been a Brazil mainstay. And then they've got two of the Madrid wingers in Rodrigo and Vinicius. Uh, And then they also have, you know, other bit players at top clubs that are really good as well, like Anthony, Richarlison. It's a really stacked lineup. And then their defense, the players are good. The system is good. The coach is good. Like, I think just the question is for them, like, why haven't they gotten over the hump? And then why couldn't it be this year? As an outsider, like, they're one of the most complete squads on paper. I think like if you're finding weaknesses, it's like back up right back, like it like what like like and that's a real one that can happen. You can get an injury and then you know maybe it's Danny Alves time. Sure, but, it like, happened in Russia. I mean, they had to yeah. rely on Fagner, a guy who's playing for Corinthians and is a teach favorite, but is by no means a world class yeah. right back. So yeah, but I do think they're definitely maybe the best squad on paper, if not easily top three. I think for sure with France and Argentina. Um, and you know, they're experienced. I know they haven't won a world cup, but this group has been there. They're really hungry. 
So I, you know, I, I'd ask you, you know, as an outsider, like, why isn't this the year for them? Or like, if you're making it, like, what's going to stop them? So I think the point that I've kind of made with this Brazil team is you're absolutely correct. The squad on papers is nearly flawless. They've had two back-to-back very successful qualification campaigns in Conmebol. Uh, Cheech has this as a well-oiled machine. They know how they want to play. They know who is going to play it and that sort of thing. There's an abundance of options, particularly at attack. But the biggest question for me for Brazil, and it's a question that we haven't been able to get the answer to and we won't be able to get the answer to until they take the pitch in a huge quarterfinal or a huge semifinal, is what happens with this team when the level goes up. In 2018, it happened one time at the World Cup against Belgium in the quarterfinals. The level went up and Brazil wasn't able to meet it for a variety of reasons. I think perhaps the biggest because Casemiro wasn't in the squad for Brazil that day. And in the interim, the level went up once for this Brazil team, pretty much. That was against Argentina in the Copa America final in 2021, and they didn't get the job done then either. They cruised to the, to the Copa America in 2019. They beat Peru in the final. They were never really tested at that tournament. Argentina is really the only team that's been able to kind of match Brazil blow for blow, and they beat them in a Copa America final, and they played a nil-nil draw in World Cup qualification. And as John said, we're still waiting for their other World Cup qualification <laughs> match that was interrupted. So, I, go ahead. I This is like sort of a meme question, but also for real. We saw Neymar and some of the other players endorse Bolsonaro. Sure. And Lula wins the election. We saw like, a, I would say sort of a melodramatic selection show where guys who make it are crying and celebrate it was cool i liked the videos but also that means some guys get left out that's the nature of the beast i get that but you have this i don't want to call it exploitative but certainly emotional unveiling process of the roster are any chemistry questions here i know this is a group that's kind of been together i know they're kind of ride or die i could see that as something that could derail i'm not talking france you know the manager pieces out and everyone's you know yelling at each other in the press But like to me as an outsider, that's also a question. Is this team going to be united? I think they are. And and I think a lot of this question, and this is kind of a really reductive way of putting it, can be answered by the fact that this means a lot to Brazil. And it means, and as we'll get to in a second with Argentina, it means a lot to Argentina. And that's not to say that there aren't other, like it doesn't mean anything to the other teams at this World Cup, because it absolutely does. It matters to France, to England, to the United States, to every team at the World Cup, it matters because, you know, it's the World Cup. But I think with Brazil and Argentina in particular, it's almost as if the desire is that much stronger. So could there theoretically be interpersonal issues within the Brazil squad? Of course, these are human beings who work together and are going to have to live together for a month. But I think you'll see that if there are any sort of issues, those will get put to the side simply because it's the World Cup and it really matters. And it would mean so much to this Brazil team to lift the World Cup. And again, Brazil and Argentina are really linked at this World Cup, I think, because they're so similar in their status as favorites, in that they haven't lifted the World Cup in a really long time, in that you have these generational talents in Messi and in Neymar, uh, and how much it would mean to both of those countries if one of them were able to lift the World Cup. And the fact that they're arch rivals, obviously. So I think you put all of that together. And I think, I don't know that that's the issue for Brazil as much as it is that question of, we haven't seen them against the top European side since they played Belgium 
in, in 2018. You know, because of the plan- pandemic and everything, there weren't a lot of opportunities, the Nations League and all of that from the European side. Brazil never really got to test themselves in the buildup to this World Cup. So when it gets to the quarterfinals and Brazil are matched up against a high-level team, whoever that may be, you know, what happens then? And I think of it, for me, the biggest question isn't, is Neymar healthy? Is Allison playing well in goal? It's, is Casemiro there in that midfield? And is he playing like we know he's capable of playing for Brazil? I agree that Casemiro is one of the most important players in the squad. He raises their floor. He's still one of the best central defensive midfields in the world with his ball winning, and he allows them to keep that defensive structure. When you talk about they get to a quarterfinal, a big game, and the level matters, I do worry just a little bit about their striker position. I know they have the best wingers in the world. I also didn't mention Rafinha at Barcelona. But, you know, Gabriel Jesus was in Man City. And obviously he's having a great season in Arsenal, but one of the worries was like, he's not an elite goal scorer. Richarlison, you know, he's a great pressing forward. He scores some interesting goals by just like kind of running around in the box. He makes stuff happen, but neither of those guys are like elite, elite finishers. And honestly, like, let's be honest at the national team level outside of France, the best strikers in the world don't always play for the best, like national teams in the world when they're at their clubs. But that's a very nitpicky point for Brazil where I could be like, maybe their strikers don't get it done and they're just creating chances. And I don't think that would be what could sink them, but it could in a big game like that. Well, and I think to that point, it's really interesting when you look at kind of the last striker in the squad for Brazil, the biggest kind of storyline outside of Danny Alves, who I'm actually interested to get John's perspective on here in a second, um, is the fact that Roberto Firmino not in the squad for Brazil. Pedro, who's been on fire for Flamengo domestically, huge in the in the Conmebol Libertadores for Brazil, scored 12 goals, top score in the competition. Most goals in the in the Libertadores by a single player in a very long time is in the squad. And I think some of that is kind of that concern amid in, look, there's so much in this Brazil squad that you have the luxury of kind of taking a spot and saying, what situation are we not covered in? And I think that answer is probably down 2-1 in the 70th minute of a big game. We need somebody who can come on and just has a nose for goal. And there might not be that player in the top, top tier of this Brazil squad. And that's why Pedro's in this team. Because he's scored goals for Flamengo, he's scored goals in huge moments. You know, Flamengo are a massive club. He's scored goals in huge moments. It hasn't been at the top European level. But this is a player that if you put him on the pitch surrounded by world-class talent, he has that wherewithal and that knowledge of getting into good positions and finishing. And that's what Brazil might need. Ideally, they don't need him at all. And they can just cruise and they beat everybody. But it's a World Cup. That's probably not going to happen. And I think that's why Pedro's in. The other big storyline from the squad announcement, which we saw yesterday, John, Danny Alves in the team as the backup right back at 39 after a period with Pumas that you would describe as? Abysmal. I think he got Andres Lilini, the Pumas manager, fired. I think that the club had sort of a disastrous kind of PR sizzle from Dani Alves signing and, and signing a couple other players from South America that, that were out of the budget that Pumas typically spends and then wasting them. I don't, I still don't think it's totally clear what Dani Alves wanted to do with Pumas. If what he wanted to do was start in defensive midfield, then he got to do it. I don't think that was the right move because it turned Pumas's middle into a big welcome sign for opposing playmakers 
and they they took it. They took the welcome. I was surprised to see him on this team because he wasn't included in past friendly rosters. At the same time, when you have a 26-man squad and you have the situations that you're talking about, Austin, where you say, well, listen, like maybe we need X, Y, Z. I think in the case of Dani Alves, it's like there are leaders in this team, but I think it's like maybe we need a guy who everyone loves and respects. He can be number 26 on the squad if we absolutely need a backup right back, if we have some sort of catastrophe in the middle, like we can stick him in there and we know he'll try hard and we know he'll give his best and we know he'll be experienced. Like, I do think, sure, if he were the starter on this squad, you'd be extremely concerned. Luckily, he's in there as a fringe player. I think lending that experience, it's going to be a World Cup of send-offs, right? Like a lot of the, sure. I, I think we're around the same generation. I think I'm a little older than both of you guys, but like, this is kind of the last World Cup for a lot of childhood heroes of ours, for even the football ecosystem that we've grown up in. First of all, with the format right. change. And second, Messi Ronaldo has been like the definitive debate of the last 15 years of football media. Maybe not that long, but but almost, right? 10 years. And that's going to end, you know? So I think it's also goodbye, Dani Alves, and goodbye, a lot of other people. Um, if he gets a send off at this World Cup, if it ends with him lifting the World Cup trophy, uh, I don't have a problem with it. Again, because he plays that sort of role on the Brazil squad where you don't say this guy needs to start every game like he did at Pumas and totally fell flat on his face. Sure. Uh, Amit, you remember our Pumas experience? Uh, I do. Goya. Kachun Kachun Ra. Kachun Kachun Ra. Kachun Kachun Ra. Goya. Oh, yeah. Uh, the only uh-huh. time that I've ever not been able to take a belt into a stadium was our yeah, no belts in Mexico, no belts in Mexico stadiums. I mean, uh, yeah. you saw how much that helped in the Querétaro incident, but sure, uh, <laughs> but typically, yeah, no belts. I also yeah. lost a very cherished water bottle trying to get into as a press, a member of the press trying to get into the Jalisco uh, to see Atlas. <sighs> Those Which I get that get. I get that one I get that one but I did I, sure. I did enjoy like this is very much an aside from the World Cup like Austin FC during the playoffs they're sponsored by Yeti which is if people aren't familiar is sort of a a, a drinks uh, container maker and they make like thermal packages and they gave out I believe eleven ounce tumblers or maybe ten ounce tumblers wow. I'm like man you could not get away with this in no. those environments because those things are going right at the goalkeeper's head. <laughs> Within uh, like five minutes, but in the warm up, it's not even making it to the match. It's so, not even making it. Luckily, that didn't happen in Austin, but uh, uh, yeah, no belts in know. Mexico State. Yeah, uh, I got a great fake jersey, probably the highest quality fake jersey Ooh, yeah. I've ever bought, too, at the Pumas match, and also the lowest quality fake jersey I ever bought at the America match, which is a story for another time. Let's get to Argentina amid um, Messi, right? Like, this kind of feels like it's the moment. Yeah, there's it is it is definitely the moment, and the big question is whether he can cement his already perfect legacy with a World Cup that he, you know, doesn't have because his resume is complete otherwise. They've come really close. They made the final in fourteen. Uh, they kind of got rocked by France in twenty eighteen, and then he got the Copa America trophy, which you talked about in the Brazil podcast to get a major trophy, but. This is the one thing on his resume. Maradona has one. He doesn't. So, like, this could be it. It's the best squad probably he's ever had around him. He is still near the peak of his powers. I mean, he's tied with Erling Holland for goal contributions in the top five leagues in Europe uh, in 22-23 season, which take that for what you, you may. I mean, 
talking about Messi more individually, he plays with Neymar, with Mbappe at PSG. He's spoiled for talent. He just jogs around. He gets the ball and he can pick out any of the best pass in the world and he can score when they don't guard him because they got to guard the other players. Like he's having a great time, but this is definitely what his moment. And you saw at Copa America, he, he didn't necessarily have his best final, but throughout that tournament, he was still their best player. He was still their creative hub. He was still ruthless on dead balls on set pieces, corner kicks. He's still a great passer and he still pops up in just those little pockets in the box. And he knows how to finish. He's the entire team's game plan, and it doesn't matter. He's still that good. Now, you know, does he have the defensive work rate he used to? No, but Argentina are built for that. They are built to press around him. They've got a lot of runners. They have other attacking talent, which is important, so you can't just key on him. It's all pointing towards this World Cup. Narrative, on the field, everything. Uh, It's really hard not to shake the feeling that, you know, as John said as soccer fans, like, we all want Messi to to have this moment. We all want him to have this crowning moment. Like it's it's really all pointing to it. I think the other thing, you know, talking about Messi Ronaldo, like I I actually think Portugal should play Ronaldo a lot less. Argentina must play Messi as much as they can. And one thing that I was really struck by, and I think was shocking, which is rare for Messi, a guy who's been in the center of attention for so long. The videos that came out, the documentary style videos of the Copa America last year. No, I don't think anyone knew how much of a vocal leader Messi apparently is. And the fact that he so badly wants this for himself and for his country, Austin, you were mentioning, like, it just means more. Like, it just means more. I think absolutely plays a factor when you evaluate this team, that it's almost certainly his last go. And his last go, as Amit says, like, not just near like maybe still at the peak of his powers sure maybe not as good as he was two three years ago but like still a very capable player of being the heart and soul of an international team i mean i heard you guys are picking them to win the world cup and i think like fair enough you know it's a team that absolutely couldn't win it and if they do no matter what happens you're going to look back and say it was messy well and the thing is Messi has never been playing better for Argentina. For so long, there was this narrative, whether it was correct or not, that he always looked and felt so burdened by the Argentina shirt. He looked and felt like it weighed so much when he had to put it on. And there was this dependence on Messi that he had to do everything. You know, he was the one who single-handedly rescued their qualification campaign ahead of Russia. You know, they go to Quito. They need three points. They fall behind by a goal. He comes up with a hat trick. He drags a team that really probably shouldn't have even made the World Cup four years ago to the World Cup. And then they had a, a mixed bag and Russia and weren't very good. He's never been playing better for Argentina. And he's never been playing freer for Argentina. And I think that's a really key point that, yes, there is so much pressure on this Argentina side. And there's no doubt about that. But the fact that they've won a major trophy with Messi in the Messi era, I think that kind of works in their favor. You're never playing with house money at the World Cup. It's the World Cup. It's still a ton of pressure. It would still mean the world to win it. But I think there's this sense that Argentina are going to give this as good of a go as they can give it. And they're going to rely on Messi and he's going to play at this super high level. And they're going to see what happens. They're going to let the chips fall as they may. And there's this sense here that it's Argentina's time and it might just be their World Cup. Austin, who do you think is the second most 
important player for Argentina? I think it's a two-way tie. I think it's Lautaro Martinez or it's the goalkeeper, Dibu Martinez. I think that those are the two players that within Argentina, outside of Messi, that would be the biggest consternation should one of them go down. Uh, Dibu Martinez is at a level that is so much higher than any other goalkeeper in the Argentine pool. Uh, I love Frank Ormani. I was a big Frank Ormani should be the Argentina number one goalkeeper. He's not at the level that Dibu Martinez is at. And I think Lautaro Martinez is the same kind of thing. This is an Argentina team that if there is a weakness, they are not particularly deep. They are not built to withstand a key injury. They are not built to withstand a key suspension should somebody have to go out for yellow card accumulation. So I think those for me are the two most important players in this Argentina side outside of Messi. Messi is obviously number one. I think it's both of the Martinez's in, in Lautaro and, and Dibu. Uh, do we really think that a manager can win the World Cup having never managed before? The only thing on Lionel Scaloni's resume, Amit, is that he's Argentina manager from 2018 until present. Is that going to matter? I don't think it will, but it feels like it should, right? Actually, I have I his resume sh- here, and it also says he knows Excel. He apparently knows my There you go. There so. you go. <laughs> I think it doesn't matter that much. I do think international managing matters. I do think, you know, you can go back to each of the last successful teams, the winners of the World Cups, and you can see that their managers had instilled a system, a culture, and also were good man managers, and it all gelled at the right time. But there's no reason why Scaloni can't do that. Um, And I think, you know, the the players kind of know what they're going to go out there to do. It's not rocket science. Like, you know, maybe if they're down in a tough match or maybe if they have a lot of injuries, maybe you'd like someone inventive, but like the game plan isn't sure. too, too crazy. Um, I think the other thing, uh, just one note on the whole messy mythos is a used a word I've used is like when you saw his last match with Barcelona, not last match, but last year at Barcelona, when they won the Copa del Rey, when they won the Copa America it's also evident for how much of the other players it means for them that sure. Messi gets a title. Right. And like that raises their collective level because they all are like, we are playing with one of the greatest players ever. We're trying to get him. It's like he's playing for Argentina. They're all playing for Argentina, but then they're also all playing for him. So there's the extra level of like intensity and dedication uh, to the same cause, which I think, which I think matters. But to answer the the coaching thing, you know, it, it could matter, but I think we also know that like international team building and team coaching is like just try to keep things simple and not like go overboard um, and get your best players out there and like, you know, don't put your players in positions to fail. When you have, you know, this is an experienced, pretty experienced squad and then a lot, and you know, he's been with them for the cycle. He's been with them through qualification yep. and won a trophy. He's kind of already answered the question, can he do it? So... Yep. I don't think he'll be a reason why they fail. Okay. I think that's a good way of looking at it. Uh, anybody else down for an Argentina-Brazil semifinal December 13th at the World Cup? Ar- I, Austin, I would... how about an Argentina-Brazil final? No. I think nah. it's got to be the semifinal. And, and I think – It's unlike, team... it's very unlikely that happens. Yeah. That they would get set up on yeah. def- different sides. But Unless yeah, Mexico wins their group. We'll get there. We'll get there. Oh, oh. L3, L3 coming in. Um, I'm down for a Brazil-Argentina final. I work in a a team that has Brazilians and Argentines. I'm engaged to a Brazilian. I'm living in Argentina. 
I'm ready to sit back and enjoy. Um, I think everybody else in my life is is not super ready to sit back and enjoy. Just wear your uh, star spangled uh, pajamas that day to yeah. watch the game. You're like, I don't care. I'm a neutral. Yeah. This one, I'm a neutral. That's me. I just want to see a big good game. U.S. men's national team guy over here. That's me. That's been me forever. You know me. Well, um, I just know what pajamas you wear. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, that is actually a a cause of consternation. Not the pajama thing, but the uh, who am I rooting for in the World Cup? Because I am engaged to a Brazilian who is not super pleased that I've kind of put my my horse behind Argentina, that I think they will win the World Cup and that I also want them to win the World Cup. Uh, she did threaten to not talk to me for the entire month. Uh, I don't think oh. that – I know, I know. At risk, get, at risk of misogyny. Oh, no. I know. <laughs> uh, it's, we'll see. I'm excited. I'm excited. Uh, let's move to things that are maybe a bit less personal for me. And let's talk about Uruguay. A bit, have they found the right – it's the same question with Uruguay, right? It's been the question for like three World Cups now. Have they struck the balance between veterans and talented younger players? This was suppo- – 2018 was supposed to be the World Cup where Uruguay had it figured out. They've got Suarez. They've got Cavani. They've got all these young, talented midfielders. And they got to the World Cup and they just kind of – did what they always did, and they had the same results kind of that they'd always had. So is this the World Cup where we see something different from Uruguay? And I think a big reason why it might be is you have a different manager. Diego Alonso is now Uruguay manager, not Oscar Tavares. Suarez and Cavani are not the forces that they once were, and I think that might be a good thing for Uruguay because they will be forced to rely on different players. And you look at it a bit, this is a team that on paper – knowing what we know about Uruguay should be really hard to play against. I think so. I, I agree with what you're saying that the new manager might help them break away from kind of the old style that we saw them play, which was pretty defensive and then rely on their strikers in space. And they were really, really good on set pieces, which they still should be um, in, in major tournaments. But I think the core of their team, their midfield is what makes them really tough to play against. And it starts with, Valverde, a Madrid player we all know, who's just one of the best in the world, and he covers so much ground. But then they have other guys. I'm really bad at pronouncing names, so I don't want to butcher them. Yeah, your Spanish <laughs> has not been great. I, I, I did want to make that point. Your Spanish and Portuguese need some work here, man. Who are you going uh, for? T- Tottenham player Rodrigo Betancourt. Betancourt, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, close enough. Close. Lucas Torreira. But then Torreira. The, one I don't, Torreira, the one I don't want to say is Arisqueta. De Arascaeta. Yeah. All right. Yeah, we two out of three were passable. That'll get you a that'll get you a pass on. Wait, wait, don't tell me. Um. Anyways, it's a good core of the group in midfield. They can cover. They can play both phases of the game well. They can transition well. So I think you'll see the same kind of principle that they're hard to play against. Um. I saw it in a USA match. Uh, even with a B Uruguay team. Uh, when I watch them, but they're just, they're tough to play through, but then they have attacking talent, obviously the big name fours. They also have Darwin Nunez, who is very polarizing uh, to Liverpool fans because he hasn't put the ball in the back of the net. But the whole thing with him is he gets in good positions and scores. The point is they have options up top too. So like you said, it's not just all on Suarez and Cavani. So I think it's going to, you know, let's see if they get out of their group. And if they do, I think they should, they definitely have the potential to make a run. But, you know, it's similar to if you listen to our USA podcast, 
There's also a range of outcomes where they could not get out of the group because, you know, they're a little old in certain spots. Martin Caceres is, was just an MLS, just playing the MLS Cup playoffs, and he's their starting center back, like it's the one of them. Um, I think Diego Godin is still very elite, but he's also old. Nah, not so very elite. He doesn't. He doesn't move. He doesn't move, move well anymore. And they really, really needed uh, Ronald. I'm sorry, Arajo. Arujo. Arujo. I'm sorry. I love, like, the, I love that he apologizes before every single. One. Like I know this because, like, I I see these names, but like I don't say them out loud to other people. Like, sure, they they make sense in your head. It works. They make sense in my head. But you know, he he was a big piece for them in the back that he's injured. I don't think he's going to be able to contribute, and that hurts. They're going to be relying on some of the older guys. So, uh, I'm I, I'm bullish about this team. I feel good about them, but. You could also say maybe, you know, the cohesion because of the new manager and because it's two different generations could also sink them. I'm not sure what it's going to be. It actually doesn't make that much sense. Uruguay is a country I really like. It's a team that I've typically picked to do well in the past. And maybe I've just been wronged too much. You know, I've loved too hard and and fallen. Um, But I can't get 2021 out of my head. And I know it's a different manager, and I know some of the pieces are, are doing better at various places. But when I look at the turnaround that Uruguay had, I'm not sure I buy it. You know, they go to Paraguay, get a victory in qualification. Then they have Venezuela at home, Peru at home, and I think they close out against Chile. And since then, it's been friendlies. And I, I, I don't know that I've seen enough of Uruguay doing it against top, top teams. There are, you know, like there is some quality in that group of South American teams I mentioned, but not, we're not talking about the teams that actually qualified for the World Cup and, or even the teams that made the playoff. And so I think like, you know, that's where I still have some questions about Diego Alonso's squad. I think he's a good manager. I like what he did in, in Liga Mekis. I think he got a bit of a rough shake um, in Miami. I was surprised when he was appointed. I think he's done well, but I don't have the sample size that I want to say yes. What we saw from Uruguay in 2021 was an anomaly that has been fixed by booting out Tavares. Not to say he didn't need to go. I think it's easy to be romantic about like a, a mythical figure in the sport. It was time for him to, to move on for sure. Uh, but I, I still have my questions. Austin, kind of like, where should I be at? Am I being too pessimistic? Should I fall back in love with Uruguay? I think the thing that's super interesting about Uruguay is there are so many of those questions, right? We saw it going into 2018. We thought Uruguay had answered the questions. And then they just kind of did what they always did. And so there's a little bit of this hope that new manager, new Uruguay, that kind of thing. But so many of the figures are exactly the same. And Uruguay in football finds itself kind of in the same spot that it's always been in this kind of underdog, overlooked kind of role that we've always seen from Uruguay. And that's great. And that makes them play this really interesting, you know, heartfelt 110% brand of football. But it's almost like it's kind of time for them to put some of that behind them and trust these super high world, high level world-class players that they have. And I think, John, one of the interesting things about it is This is a group that's really interesting for them because I think it's a really wide open group. I don't think you can, you know, say Portugal are at that much higher of a level than Uruguay. South Korea aren't at that much higher of a level. I think Ghana are probably the worst team at this World Cup. 
So Uruguay have a really big opportunity ahead of them because if they win this group, not only do you probably not have to play Brazil in the round of 16, but you're going to find yourself on, I think it's the right side of the bracket. I don't know how it's going to shape down in all the bracket graphics, but it's the side of the bracket that on paper looks like it might be a bit easier and you'll be better built to make a big run, right? Yeah, that's why Portugal is my dark horse, though. Not Uruguay. I, I, I don't know. I, I think like the opportunity is certainly there, right? But I, I, I still just have the questions about that blend, right? I think it really is about the blend, the generational change. Like, how quickly do you need to accelerate? How much do you move away from Luis Suarez? How much do you, you know, like, look, like we all love South American soccer here, but is preparing for a World Cup with Nacional the best way to do so? None of us would say it is, right? I think right. like there there are plenty of questions about plenty of different players and like you're right that's what makes this team intriguing and fun. I'm saying I'm selling. I don't buy it. I'm open to being wrong, but I don't buy it. Sure. Well, just to to put a cap on the Suarez thing and we'll move on from Uruguay. Goes to Nacional with like this grand plan. All right, we're in the Conmebol Sudamericana. We're gonna make this Sudamericana run. Gets to Nacional, can't play in the first leg. They lose. Makes his Nacional re-debut in the Sudamericana in Goiania, the middle of nowhere in Brazil, against a team that's literally going to get relegated from the Brazilian top tier. And they just got hammered. And that team, that Nacional team, has the starting striker for Uruguay and Suarez, and their starting goalkeeper probably, and Sergio Rochette. So yeah, I, I think there's it's fair to, to sell a little bit on Uruguay, but admit I'm buying. You knew I was going to buy. I'm always going to buy. I'm in on Uruguay. I think South Korea um, is probably a little worse than them. We'll see with uh, my Tottenham player I support, Sun Hyung Min, if he's going to be fully ready to go for them. But if they finish second, it's going to be really tough uh, to get past the round of 16. So the, the banking on them making a run is saying that they can win the group. And I do think Portugal, you know, you said the level isn't that far off. It's definitely not far, but I do think it's a mark above just because the overall squad quality, you look at more positions and a little more depth, you'd feel better about Portugal, especially it's not a one-off, it's a three-game uh, stage. But I I think I'm more leaning with John in this one that I'm, I'm kind of against Uruguay, but I think they could give Brazil a really, really tough game in the round of 16 if that's the outcome. Um, and, you know, we saw Colombia take Brazil to penalty kicks uh, in a World Cup this decade. So it's, you know, anything can happen. They, they could, they could make that, uh, make that game really, really difficult. And I, I wouldn't pick them to get out of the group, but if they did, I wouldn't be surprised. It's kind of a cop out. I, I'd pick the other way, but it could happen. So, uh, are the reports of big first game true? Amit Frodoi? big first game. Yes. This is, this is a uh-huh. screaming big first game. When you look at that group in particular for your, for Uruguay, yes. Speaking of big first game, how's that for a transition? Ecuador, who will be playing the biggest of first games against Qatar in the World Cup opener, back at the World Cup, as I said earlier, deserving of their spot at the World Cup, but far and away the fourth best South American team at this World Cup. The big question with Ecuador is which Ecuador are we going to get? Is the fun Ecuador that we saw for a lot of the qualification cycle, scoring goals, playing open, trusting the young players going to show up? Or is Gustavo Alfaro going to kind of fall back on what makes Gustavo Alfaro Gustavo Alfaro 
and boring Ecuador, which is what we've seen recently in draws and scoreless draws and very, very few goals. I think Amit, if Ecuador are going to get out of this group and are going to make a run, it is dependent on them being able to play football, particularly in that opening match against Qatar. Big first game because they probably need the three points to stand a good chance of getting out of the group. I agree with you completely. Um, you look at their opponents, um, they're going to need to take it to teams. They're, they're not going to be able to sit back. That's how they're going to end up with two points or three points on all draws. Like you're going to need four or seven to try to get out of this group. You have to beat Qatar in front of their home fans. I just think sitting back and, you know, being a little boring is not going to help them. And they have the attacking talent to take it to their teams, take a little risk. So I agree with you. And then, you know, you look at Senegal, you know, a team that they can, has not been playing well. I know they won uh, the Africa Continental Tournament, AFCON, but they didn't really have great qualification. And the squad is lower in the list of the overall 32. And then, you know, we can talk about Qatar now, but they're, they're beatable for sure too. There's a real case that they can make it out of this group in second behind the Netherlands, but I, I agree it's going to take them stepping a little outside their comfort zone, which I'm not sure that they will until it's too late. Like maybe they do that in match day two or match day three when they're already up against it and chasing results, which leads to fun soccer, but not necessarily for them getting the results they need. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think that first game sort of preposterously moved a day earlier, just like a couple weeks ago, basically it's going to feel like an occasion, right? Like no matter what happens, it is the opening game, no matter how sort of vociferous the Qatar fans are. You know, I don't think we're going to see like the, the, uh, Ruzella, like 2010, you know, surprise where it's like, Ooh, this is going to be interesting. Although maybe, I don't know, it'll be a surprise, but like, even then it's just going to be an occasion. And I think Alfaro does sort of default to safe, and when his teams have not played safe, they've been better. I mean, talk about the tools that like they do have at their disposal when they're not playing safe. This is it a fun team. There are fun, good, good players good in players. this team. A lot of young, good players. I mean, we've seen the exodus of talent, the players that have come from the Independiente del Valle Academy and others. It's not just IDV, right? It's others, other academies that are producing players in Ecuador. It's an exciting moment for, for, for soccer in that country. And yet you just wonder if the national team will be able to have that expression. I, I don't even know that Alfaro is the wrong guy for the job. They did great in qualification. They got to this stage. Jordi Cruyff was leading this team in this cycle, kind of, which is crazy. <laughs> yeah, uh, but of. ultimately, I do wonder if those sort of tendencies and limitations will mean that Ecuador struggles to reach its maximum potential at this tournament. That's what I'm worried about. I think it's a really compelling group. Yeah, because I could see any of the teams advancing. I really could, and I could really see any of the teams winning. I, I, I'm not a big. I'm not super convinced by the Netherlands. So maybe that's why. Maybe if people really believe that they're going to win the group, then then there's not as much openness. But I think there is. I think Ecuador could beat the Netherlands on their day. It's just, will they go out with the right style? Will those young players rise to the occasion? Yeah, and I think that's why this first game is so big because if they bag three points in the first game, then the Alfaro default could be beneficial to them and it could help them end up getting out of the group. So yeah, let's see with Ecuador. I'm hopeful that they can show us something and that 
the players that we already know in, in Moises Caicedo can mix with some of the players that we're going to know going forward for Ecuador, particularly on a worldwide stage, you know, in Cafe, Sarmiento, uh, Plata, those type of players. I hope that they're given the chance to, to really show um, everything that they, 